Hi, guys. Today on a special episode of Love Murder, we build on the case featured in episode 110 with an interview with the author of one of the primary sources we use for the show. Dr. Jan Candy's perspective, however, is different from the other journalists whose work we often cite in that she actually lived through the events of the story as they happened. Dr. Candy is a psychologist, an author, a podcaster, an educator, and a true inspiration. Okay, welcome back everyone to Love Murder. Hopefully by now you have listened to the latest episode, which just came out yesterday. If not, stop what you're doing, go back and put that episode on because there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this interview today. <laughs> we are joined by Dr. Jan Canty, a psychologist, author, and homicide survivor who is also a fellow podcaster with her show, The Domino Effect of Murder. So I contacted Dr. Candy after using her excellent memoir, which of course I totally was just raving about it on our show yesterday, A Life Divided as a big reference for my work yesterday. And she was gracious enough to join us. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So hopefully people have already listened to the episode, but I was hoping you could give us a quick overview of what happened to make you a homicide survivor in your husband's case. Well, as a quick recap, life was kind of churning along. We've been married 11 years and he failed to come home one night, completely out of the blue, unlike him. He was very punctual. It was a raging storm that night. I was watching the three-hour special for AIDS, and so I lost track of time. I looked up, and it was dark, and I'm like, wow, he is way overdue. And this is before cell phones. This is back in 85 and before you know instant communication, texting, and all that. So I had to kind of develop ways to figure out what was going on, and the long and short of it was I didn't know what happened to him. He not only failed to come home that night, he failed to come home for many nights. And I called my parents who were in Arizona and asked them to come out to be with me. And they did. They dropped everything and came out to help me. And then the next big thing was I got a phone call kind of out of the blue from Detective Marlis Landeros of the Detroit Police Department asking me to come down to headquarters to meet with Gil Hill, the inspector Gil Hill, who, by the way, is just come off the movie set with Eddie Murphy. They were filming Beverly Hills Cop. He played the role of Detective Todd, his boss, and he's not a lot different in real life. So <laughs> I kind of knew what I was in for because it was all the, you know, it was all over the news. We knew in Detroit who he was in the movies. And so I knew him instantly, I felt. And he wasn't much different, as I said. And he basically is a man of very few words, very intense. And he said, basically, we have reason to believe your husband's been murdered. We don't have his body yet, but he's been seen down on Casper Street handing out a lot of cash. I'd suggest you go home and look at your finances. I mean, it was that blunt. Did this come as a shock to you? I knew that you kind of had an inkling that the finances weren't exactly right because of his psychiatric hospitalization. You went through some of his bills. Yes. But I attributed that to his psychiatric state of mind at that point because the world was crumbling around him. He couldn't stay on top of everything. And I kind of grew my way out of that because after he came home from the hospital, there was no bill collectors, that lights weren't shut off, there wasn't any mail that alarmed me. So I just chalked it up to, well, he lost grip, you know, and things slip through the cracks when you're elsewhere in your mind. 
That makes total sense, of course. So I went home and checked, and sure enough, we were not only broke, we were like 30000 in debt, which today is closer to 72000 And everywhere I looked, there was money owed. IRS, the office rent, the house mortgage, car payments, et cetera. And it made no sense because he was working constantly. So we had the police trying to figure it out. We waited at home. The news descended and never let a grip go by. They were just swallowing me as best they could. And then the next major thing was Detective Landeros called us back for a second time. And this time she said, though, I'm going to drive you down to police headquarters. And we went up to floor five, which was it's a 10-story building, the police headquarters. She took us into floor five, which is homicide division. And basically, Gil Hill said, we've uncovered his body parts. They are in the morgue. We need you to go over there and identify him for court purposes. And it was just that blunt. I was a few sentences. I wasn't with him long. And they didn't tell you who was the suspect or what had happened or how this had all occurred? No. It was just that blunt? It was that blunt. I think partly it's because of the fact that at that year, there were 750 official homicides in the city. And according to some of the detectives that I spoke with later, they said it was probably closer to 1,000 people had been murdered that year in the city. And so they were just barely keeping abreast of everything. And they were not there to hold my hand, believe me. They were there to figure the case out, move on to the next one, and you're on your own kind of thing. That's a lot to put on you after that. <laughs> yeah, it was. So I went over to the morgue with, actually, Detective Landeros drove us over there, and she prepared me for what I was going to see. We were there very early. It was like a 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning, so we didn't expect anybody to be around, but there was one reporter waiting at the front entrance. It was a very old, cryptic-looking building. It was built in the 20s and V-shaped. It was supposed to look Egyptian. It was creepy as hell. I walked in, and it was a hot, humid July day, and it was not air-conditioned in there. I remember walking in the front door, and it was then I remembered in the newspaper, I'd read a story a few years earlier, that on the second floor, they had a showcase up there for not the public, but whoever else was allowed to go up there, of all the implements, the stranger implements of death and suicide that they had collected over the years. And I'm thinking, this place is just creepy. It's just yeah. creepy. Yeah. Oof. So I had to go through the procedure of identifying him, and I did. It took me two tries, but I got through it. That was a very poignant part of your memoir, just this whole moment of your life where you're realizing the depths of the betrayal. And also, as I recall from your book, you were with your father, and thank goodness for him, but it was very cold and isolating and deeply traumatizing experience to be asked to identify your husband's head at this point. Well, I was told by a detective recently that they don't even do that anymore. That's what I thought. I couldn't believe that this was a practice. Well, then DNA wasn't what it was today. I mean, now you just need a couple of droplets and boom, you can nail it. But back then you could not. And this detective went on to say something that I spoke with recently, said something else, which makes a lot of sense. He said, and even if DNA wasn't as good today, we still don't usually do this for the simple reason that it's a bad identification. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said he was so disfigured that the defense could make the case that how would you even recognize who that was? 
given the disfigurement? And why put you through it if it's not going to be anything valid in court? So he said, we don't usually do this. But that's their method at that point. And I wasn't in a position to ask questions. So went along with it. I consider that my high watermark of grit to be able to get through that without fainting. But I had support. I had my parents. My mom sat outside, but my dad came with me, as is Detective Landeros, which she did not have to do. And they each held me under my arm and helped me get through it. As I recall, it was did not take very long, but it was etched in my mind. It was pretty graphic because he had been buried in a bog for over a week in hot, humid weather and then exhumed and brought in and cleaned up as best they could. And, you know, he didn't look like himself. And I remember her last words to me before she, I opened my eyes. She said, are you ready? And I thought, how can I ever be ready? How can any wife ever be ready for this? You just grit your teeth and get through it. Yeah, you have an unbelievable amount of resilience. And that comes through in your work. And, you know, we'll get down to the work you do with other fellow survivors and how you help people through your you know, seminars and your podcasts and everything. I remember one time I was talking to my husband, Nathaniel, about this, and he said when something tragic happens and people always say, oh, you know, it happened for a reason or everything happens for a reason because look at what good things came later. And he's like, it's not good things came later. If you're a resilient person, you move forward and you do good things in your life and you build a beautiful life. But that didn't mean that that horrible thing happened for any reason. (laughs) So I was thinking about you with that because you did do such a beautiful job with taking these bitter lemons and making this lemonade to feed the world and try to help others, which is beautiful. I just felt very early on that John Carl Fry and Dawn Marie Spence took my husband, my house, my privacy, my money, my health, and my peace of mind. And I thought, I am not going to let them have one more thing. The best revenge is success. And I had no clue how I was going to get through it or what I was going to do with the experience or how long it would take. But all I did know for certain is that they were not going to break me. There was no way I was going to let them get one more thing from me. I was so angry and so determined that I was willing to take however long it took and do whatever I had to do. And that I knew that eventually I'd find my way. I I didn't know, like I said, how long or what form it would be. But I just knew that I would overcome it. I just never doubted that. That says so much about you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people should be reading A Life Divided instead of Eat, Pray, Love, because it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is definitely a journey of self-discovery and coping and learning and giving back. And I really appreciate everything you've done. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the, I know I already told Andy on the episode, and so some some of our listeners may know, some of the incredible things you did to start putting yourself back together and getting yourself in a healthy position that then you were able to become a helper? Well, the first thing I decided after 18 months was to get out of Detroit because the press would not leave me alone. And I was tired of being the widow. I did not want pity. I still don't like it. And I thought the first thing I got to do then is leave. I didn't want to, but I thought I've got to get a clean slate, which was easier to do in 85 than it is today. So I just decided to move and I did. And I left clinical work altogether and went into teaching, which I loved. And 
Uh, it was then. It wasn't until after I moved and exhaled and unpacked that I could really start to absorb. And this is almost two years after the fact that I could really absorb all that had taken place that I hadn't even started to grieve yet because I was so busy putting out fires that had been created by this mess that that kept putting on. That was a luxury. I, I just couldn't deal with that yet. I had to think about the IRS. I had to think about my health. I had to think about selling the house. I had to think about keeping the media at bay, et cetera, et cetera. So there was no time to sit and reflect. But finally, I did. And when I did, I made the decision that. I've got to rely on me to somehow get myself through this because this is, like I said, back before the internet, there was no self-help groups available. There was no internet. There was a grief therapy wasn't even quite a thing yet, especially in smaller towns. And so what I did is I fell back on my training, which was a simple model. I still stick by it today. It's called the biopsychosocial model. And basically all it says is that if you really want to make a permanent lasting important change in your life, you must attend to those three parts of your life, the biological, the psychological, and the sociological. You can't omit any of them. So I thought, okay, so sociological. I, I did not want to be pitied or see myself as broken. I needed to find a way to rise above. So what I did, and I was teaching cross-cultural psychotherapy at that point, I thought, I know I love photography. I love travel. I'm going to go volunteer on very remote places on different continents and see how other people live and see what tragedies they go through. And boy, was that a pivot shift for me because I came away thinking, huh, this is nothing compared to what other people have to deal with. Oh my Lord. I mean, I was in Kenya for just as a one of many examples. When I was in Kenya, I was near Olipikidange and I was helping build a girls' school. And these women are married off at like nine or 10 they have forced circumcision. They have baby after baby after baby. They're physically abused. They're mentally abused. They have no rights and nowhere to go for help. If they had an emergency, let's say their arm was lacerated deeply, they would just have to figure it out themselves. There's no help available anywhere, which is why none of them live that long. And they look much older than they truly are. So adversity to them is a daily thing. They don't have clean water, clean roads, clean food, clean anything. So I came away from that experience really, you know, I started looking at what had not changed in my life and the assets, the resources that I had, such as my education, my house, clean water, legal rights, transportation, et cetera, friends. And it started putting it in a whole different perspective. I did not feel sorry for myself. I did not feel frightened. I did not feel like it was going to overwhelm me. I just thought, it's bad, but I will work my way through this. So that was what I did sociologically at the start to address that dimension. And of course, I didn't have to deal with the mess of the press anymore because they didn't know where I went. Then physically, I decided, okay, I've really got to get serious about getting in shape. So I joined a gym, met some fantastic women. We worked out together four mornings a week at 6.30 in the morning, come rain or shine. And if, and if I was late, I, they, I heard from it. Where have you been? You're 10 minutes late. That means you got to do 10 more push-ups, that kind of thing. And we ended up doing triathlons together. And I ended up doing five altogether. Wow. Congratulations. I never felt so physically fit in my life. And it actually ended up saving my life because many years later, when I was in training for my next triathlon, I was running up a muddy hill and it was very steep, but very soft because it was mud, which is why I slipped. 
my arms went against the mud to brace myself, and I broke my arm, which I thought, well, that's odd. It wasn't even a hard hit. It's mud. And so I got to the hospital, and several hours later, they diagnosed me with cancer. And they said that, you know, the kind of cancer you have is not curable. So I thought, I'm going to go do the same thing. The biopsychosocial model is going to get me through this. And one of the things that I learned after the chemo, the surgery, the radiation, and the stem cell transplant was that the oncologists that I spoke with, every single one of them told me, and I saw many over the time I was in treatment, every single one of them told me that working out of the gym saved my life because my bones were incredibly strong. Uh. And it made the treatment much more effective. And in fact, my last visit to my oncologist, he said, you know, only 12% of people beat this cancer, but you might be one of them because it's been six years now. So physically, I got in shape. I re- and I never did smoke, so that wasn't an issue. I ate carefully. I felt great physically. And then psychologically was the tough part because I wasn't ready to open up. I just couldn't go there. I because when I moved, I didn't tell a soul. Nobody knew about what had happened in Detroit. And I moved again, and still people didn't know. And what happened to change all that was three things happened in the same week. One was that a coworker went missing, and everybody was talking about it. Like, And so one coworker came up to me, and she said, could you imagine somebody being missing in your family, how awful that would be? And I'm going, oh, no. I can't imagine that. And then inside, I'm thinking, I'm being fake. I'm not being authentic. And that same week, we had a lecture from a physician talking about something. And as a side comment, he said, people who hold a secret for years and years play a price physically. And I thought, ooh, Uh, it's not good. I don't want that. And then I went back to my office to kind of think about those things. And I glanced over at this shelf of books that I have there that are still my favorite books. They're all about people who've been through adversity and found a way to come out of it, okay? I looked at those books on the shelf and I thought, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. I can speak about this. It's been 30 years and that's a long time to hold it inside and to watch what you say and not let people get to know you really as well as they could. And so I gingerly started talking about it with some of my newer friends that I met in the newer place I was living. And of course, they were taken aback, like, well, I've known you three years and you're just telling me this now. I don't know what I was expecting, but nobody was rude or judgmental or or even that nosy. They were very supportive. And that was very surprising to me and very gratifying to me. So I began to feel more like I was an honest person again, that I could be myself. And then after that, the next big thing that happened was I remarried and my husband, you know how when you're dating, you hit this point where probably sooner rather than later where you're asked, you know, so have you ever been married before and what happened and this kind of thing? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a loaded first date (laughs) question right there. (laughs) And I just wouldn't go there. I just said, you know, I was married before and he died. And that's all I'm going to say at this point. Maybe later I'll tell you more. And okay. And so a few months go by and well, to revisit that topic, and I said, he didn't die a natural death. He was killed. That's all I'm going to say. And I'll tell you more later. And he's like, okay. He was very patient. Aww. And in fact, he did not know the full story till my book came out. That's how long it took him, wow. probably 15 years before he knew the full story. I just didn't want to go there. I'm like, that was then. This is now. I wanted to be seen as, as how I was, not how I was at that moment, now I was in the past. 
Everyone has a process, you know, with all grief and tragedy. Everyone has their own. Their own timetable. Yes, of course. Amount of trust that you have to feel and comfort. And I think everyone, as you get older, has to be able to respect that. Also, the person that you are in front of him today isn't necessarily, you know, reflected with the Jan you were back 30 years ago. So I totally understand that. No. So then I had a relative who does crime scene cleanup for a living, diligent decon, encourage me to do the podcast. And that was like opening a window because when I did, as you probably know from doing this work yourself, it is a community into itself. And I met people from literally, literally all around the world who've been through similar or at least equally awful situations. And it really made me feel like I found my tribe, you know, like they understand what I'm talking about. I can finish their sentences for them. So what I did one night after the first season is I sat down and I listened to every episode back to back to back. And what I was trying to do is to figure out what are the similarities and differences between these stories that I'm hearing from all these people. And what I came to was the conclusion that the Homicides themselves were very unique. There was no two that were even closely similar. But the aftermath was quite predictable and quite similar. And that, to me, was an eye-opener. And that meant that with a bit of knowledge, you can anticipate how to help other people. And so that set me on the path of writing my second book, which is hopefully going to be out later this year, called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. And it takes people through the whole process, starting with the death notification, the funeral planning, crime scene cleanup, meeting with detectives, dealing with the media, helping kids through grief, et cetera, et cetera, down through long-term parole and advocacy. That is unbelievably helpful. I was going to ask you, actually, what you would want to tell our audience that they might not know about surviving a homicide in your family. And it sounds like that book will have everything that you could possibly <laughs> ever need to know. <laughs> well, it's, I tried to be comprehensive. There's some chapters that won't be useful. Like, you know, not everybody needs a chapter on crime scene cleanup because it might have not happened under their roof. But, well, I think the big shock that comes to most people, it did me, is that your social circle dramatically changes. People that you thought would be there by your side won't be, and vice versa. Complete strangers can say something that can just change your life. That is something people need to know because if they don't know that, then they think it's them. And it's not. It's just a common experience of what happens during early grief. The other thing is, I think, when it comes to homicide and somewhat to suicide too, is people are surprised how expensive it is to have a death in your family. There are so many hidden expenses as you go along the way. In this preparation I'm doing for this talk this, that's coming up this week, I really delved into that topic a little more. And I found out that on average today, the cost of a homicide to a family is $48,000. And the cost of a suicide to a family is $67,000. And most people cannot meet those expenses even after five years. That's something people won't be prepared for. There are so many dimensions of how it changes your life. And I think in the beginning, you don't know, and it's probably a good thing. Because if you knew the total picture of what you have in front of you, I think it would make it much worse. Oh, that's terrible. And in your case as well, the media scrutiny was very intense. Yes, relentless. I had a recent discussion with a woman by the name of Mary 
um, I think her last name is Maud. She was a producer on 60 Minutes. She interviewed me for a Discovery interview recently, and she made the point. I never thought of this. She said they would not have done that to a male in your shoes. If it had been the wife that had been murdered, they wouldn't have pursued you with that much of entitlement. I didn't I never knew, thought of it that way. But yes, they were very hell-bent on getting the scoop at any costs to the point where they ruined his funeral. There was arguing going on behind me. I, I refused to turn around, but I heard some of the genuine people that were there for the right reasons turn to them and say, haven't you had you fill your bastards? Get out of here. And they were smirking and they had their bright lights. And I had told, I had gone 90 minutes early to tell the undertaker at Bear Hyden Funeral Home in Gross Point Park, I did not want the media inside and he let him in anyway. And it was all over the evening news. So perhaps their motivation was to get on the news that night. I don't know. It's sickening. It's really upsetting to hear about. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that because I'd like to think, and I, I don't know if it's any better today, it might even be worse because things live on the internet, that to have such a lack of respect or even any awareness that they were dealing with real humans and real human life. And they don't understand they could be in my shoes tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. It's an equal opportunity club. Yeah, that's for sure. I feel like doing what we do, talking about these types of cases, it's, it is less of becoming desensitized and more of realizing that it can happen to any person at any time. I mean, we, we cover mostly relationships. So there are people that were just thought they were in love or they were having a marriage and things were going on and one thing led to another. It's all very ordinary. It's just an average, ordinary, usually in our show, American life. And you never know. No, you don't. It's something that comes out of the blue. Most of the people that I speak with on my podcast are just your ordinary folks. They're not people that are running in the streets and looking for trouble and, you know, antagonizing people. These are people that are just doing their life and it just descends on them without warning and it just takes them by shock. And it's a lasting imprint. Uh, I, it's changed me in ways that I could not have anticipated. Maybe it still will as time evolves, but I think people are unprepared because we don't talk honestly about this topic. In fact, most true crime, most true crime movies, most true crime literature deals with the perpetrator and the act. It does not deal with the survivors, let alone does it talk about the long-term effects on them. I mean, for example, if we talk about Ted Bundy and his victims, they may know some of the names of the victims, or they may not, but they probably know next to nothing about what impact did Ted Bundy's actions have on the survivors long term. Absolutely. You made a, that point brilliantly in your book. You talked about that and you had the caveat that you understood that there's a lot of survivors because they're so mistreated by the media, shy away from the media. Mm -hmm. But it was your goal in writing this book and having the podcast. And, and luckily, a lot of survivors are starting their own podcast to give this community a voice and resources and a community so they feel understood and heard and supported mm -hmm. in a way that you did not have when you were experiencing this. No. And I think because I've been in their shoes, they trust me more than I'm just, you know, somebody from the outside looking in. But I've kind of come in a way, I've softened a little bit on my attitudes about the media because of my association with Tamara Cherry. She's actually written the foreword to my next book, and she was a crime writer. But what she did is 
she kind of saw the light. She looked back on her years of reporting in Toronto and thought, my God, what have I done to these people? And she quit it. And she's now doing research on crime victims and trying to educate other journalists about their impact that they've made on the lives of these people by their intrusiveness and their rushing in and not giving people time to think. That's great to hear. And I was going to actually ask you if you have resources or advice for podcasters like us or other media personnel who deal in true crime and how we collectively can be better survivor and victim advocates. Well, to start with, I would say back off on the intensity with which people follow the perpetrator. I find it personally nauseating that we have these crime porn attitudes towards people like that. I mean, you if you go on, on uh, a certain websites, I don't know if I should name them or not, you can buy stuff like there's a cereal spoon that's out on for sale right now. And it says serial killer, get it on the spoon. Uh, yeah. Or crime con. There's now crime cruises. It's become an entertainment. And I think it's all focused on the gore and the shock value. I would think that one of the things that people who want to be more authentic and helpful can do is to focus more on the aftermath and to debunk myths. Here's just one of, I mean, how much time we have, but here's just one myth. Most women believe that they are in danger by walking to their car in a, in a parking garage or staying at a bar till 2 a.m. and walking to their car. And I'm not saying it's without risk. I'm not saying that. But statistically speaking, you have a far, far greater chance of dying at home at the hands of your intimate partner. Oh, 100%. That is yeah. where your danger lies. We keep filling the myths, you know, that, oh, look over your back. And as far as serial murders go, you have a better chance of being hit by a meteorite. For example, I did the statistics on this, and I found out that you have eight times the chance of dying by falling out of bed and hitting your head than being killed by a serial murder. But do we spend time talking about cancer and heart disease, which will claim 50% of the population, and next would be auto accidents? If we put the time into the true causes of death as opposed to serial murder and crime, that's what we would be portraying is how to be safe in a car and how to, how to avoid cancer and how to avoid heart disease. But people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the extreme, unusual ways to die, like by a serial murderer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen. It does happen. I've had I've interviewed people on my show who've had that happen. But statistically speaking, no. So one of the things is to debunk myths, to make sure that your reporting is consistent with reality, with what really happens out there. That is good to know. That I mean, that is definitely why we started the podcast that we have. We actually don't cover serial killers in general. Unless it's a woman who killed a lot of husbands. Um, because <laughs> the Black are, Widow thing. The Black yes. Widow thing. Other than that, because it's all, it is, it's true what you said, obviously. Statistically, you are much, much more likely you are. Like, I, is, I, I don't remember the exact statistic, Dr. Canty, but it is like something overwhelming that you will be killed by your intimate partner. And when Andy and I were pregnant at the same time, another startling statistic was that the leading cause for death in pregnant women is homicide. <gasps> and nine times out of 10, it's by the usual biological father. Yes. Yep. yep. I just did an episode on that. And it was a, it's tragic. I mean, 
as I said in my podcast when I did it, I said to think that a man who helped contribute to bringing a life into this world potentially would rather spend life, risk life in prison than risk life as a father. I can't wrap my head around that. No, it's devastating. And it's unknown in the animal kingdom. Yeah. It is an anomaly that mm-hmm. this occurs. Now, you'll, you'll see animals kill offspring in the animal kingdom, but they don't kill pregnant partners in the wild. They don't, but we do. And when women are accused or are convicted of murder, they often on average spend 10 years longer incarcerated than a man. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. I recently attended a conference in Phoenix, and I'm going to go back next year. It was phenomenal. It's for the Innocence Project. They want me to be part of them because they feel that as a crime victim, my voice will carry weight with legislators because I don't have an axe to grind. It's, this isn't my, my issue. I mean, I don't have anybody in prison that I'm trying to get out who's innocent. I can speak to the fact that not only do we want people incarcerated who kill, we want them accurately incarcerated. You do not want to in- innocently convict anybody. And the, the stories I heard were so ugly. I talked to a man who was nine days away from being executed on death row. He'd been in 35 years. And he kept saying, the evidence is out there. The DNA is out there. And nobody would listen to him until finally this one attorney thought, what have I got to lose? So she went to the police and they said, he's, he's just, no, there's no DNA out there. And so she went to the lab where he said the DNA, I don't know how he knew, but the lab where the DNA would be, they had never processed that it was on the shelf. No. Whoa. And when they got it and analyzed it, it's like, oops, sorry. And this topic came really close to home for me because when I attended the workshop for women at this conference, I found out that many women on death row are there because of a crime related to their child that the death of their child. This one currently we're trying to get exonerated. Her two-year-old fell down the concrete steps at her apartment complex and died. And the first responder wrote in the notes that he suspected that she was pushed. What he did not write was that that same child had fallen down the stairs a day earlier at the babysitter's all the way down the stairs and was probably head injured at the time the mother had the baby at her house, at her own house, that not never got put into the record. And she's imminently going to be put to death over the objections of about half the legislature in Texas. Well, at any rate, I got to talking to some of these women and they were telling me how once it's in writing, it's very hard to extricate yourself and prove yourself unless you have a hotshot attorney to help you. And why this was so personal for me was because my daughter, who I adopted, is biracial and blacks have a worse time of this exoneration business than whites do. And her baby, my grandchild, was very ill and throwing up and losing weight and falling eventually. And, and she was taking her from doctor to doctor to doctor. And they kept giving her antibiotics for her stomach. Infl- and we're thinking after a year, that doesn't make sense. We kept taking her to doctors. Finally, my daughter took her to an urgent care clinic. And all this nurse did, bless her heart, All this nurse did was take a measuring tape, measure my grandbaby's head and said, go to the children's hospital now. Don't go home. I'm calling ahead. They need her seen today. They need an MRI now. And they rushed her into the hospital, did an MRI. They found a tumor that was so big, it not only took up half her brain, it was over the midline. (gasps) And the neurologist told us if we hadn't operated, she'd have been dead in two weeks. 
because it was pressing against your respiratory system. So my point is that had that not that last little important part happened and my grandbaby died in her bed with bruises, my daughter could have been in the shoes of those women I met at the conference because she's black. She's got a bruised baby. There's no external reason why this child should have died. And if they had not done an MRI on this dead child, they would not have seen the tumor. And they could have accused her of suffocating her because, see, the, again, as it was pointing, the tumor was pressing against her respiratory system. So she was slowly suffocating, which is why oh. she was falling and getting bruised. It's that easy how it can happen. And I think those stories need to be told rather than everybody who's found guilty is really guilty. They're not. It's just a something I feel strongly about, I guess you can tell. Was that your first time going to that convention? Yeah, and I'm going to go back. I have never felt so welcome and so, oh, like all the superficial crap was stripped away. You could like, approach anybody from any other race, people you'd never talked to before, and you just had this instant connection. And you could sit down and have a conversation with them. There wasn't this awkward, like, should I or shouldn't I or... Will I be seen as this or that? And are you Democrat or Republican? No, it didn't matter. This person had been through hell and back, and they knew that you were there to support them in any way you could to get them back on their feet. It was a really refreshing kind of experience. And I just felt so bad for these women that were, oh, I, there's so many stories there that that could be a whole book right there, <laughs> chapter after chapter of these 35 years. And then there's the perception that when they get out, that they hit the ground running. And that's so not true. 13 states, they offer them nothing. And some states that do have financial reimbursement for some of the years lost, you have to petition the Senate. I mean, they have these idiotic rules that you have to jump through these hoops. And even if all those things happen, it's never truly erased the exoneration. So you could be stopped, let's say, for running a stop sign. The cop pulls you over and it didn't get removed from some website somewhere, and they look at it and say, well, you're supposed to be in prison for murder because you got 25 years and it's only 15, you're going back in. And they'll rearrest you and go through the whole thing. They'll eventually get out, but they re-traumatize these people and they have so much catching up to do. Also, people who, like some other true crime podcaster, could speculate or do an episode and say, well, I don't know, they could still be guilty. Who knows? Right. That's right. And that's terrible. Yeah, the emotional and social that's re-traumatizing. The games that DAs play frighten the hell out of me. Prosecutorial immunity and all the rest. And you read this stuff and you talk to these people and it's like, am I living in the United States? Because they don't teach this in civics class, just like what's going on now with the indigenous boarding schools and these dead children that they're finding. You don't hear about that in your history books. Why is that? They don't want to talk about it. No, I asked my grandson, who's 13 and reads constantly, loves histories. Has any of this been in your school? No, are you kidding? No, they wouldn't talk about that. No, I know that's a little bit off topic. But... No, this is fantastic. This is exactly the discussion I hoped we'd have. It's aligned with what we feel as well, just so you know. 100%. I was just going to make a comment that Jan also has to add, like dismantling institutional racism yes. in yes. our justice system <laughs> to her resume. <laughs> well, when I met my daughters, the um, social worker who I really like, she said, you know, I think you'd be a good match for them because their mother was murdered and you can help them with that as they get older. And I thought, yeah, I probably can. And so I thought taking two children on at once, but why not? 
<laughs> and so I did. And, you know, when I was in cancer treatment, it was my youngest that got me through it. I mean, she was only 23. And by the time she was done, she looked 50 for there for a little bit. She was so exhausted. And I will never forget this ever. I said to her at one point, I said, you know, I hope I haven't put too much on your shoulders because she had to take my temperature every hour. I was on 25 different meds as an outpatient. She had to get me to all my appointments. She had to keep the place spotlessly clean because I had my, they were ruining my immune system on purpose so that it would regrow. So she had to be very careful. And she looked haggard and she was worried about my health. And I said to her, you know, I hope I haven't put too much on your shoulders because she was just in her 20s, you know. And she said, I'll never forget this. She said, Mom, she said, you saved my life and now I'm saving your life. Oh, I'm going to cry. So, <laughs> you know? so you first time know. crying during an interview. So. <laughs> so, you know, those are the perks, you know. The perks of motherhood. Yeah. And what have you imparted on your daughters about life and about, I mean, it doesn't have to just be about surviving homicide. You can tell us some some of your other great life lessons. We're, we would listen to anything you say. <laughs> when they were little, I read them the Dear America series. It's a collection of books on people in difficult situations. I, I remember one, it was called Dear America, and it was about the Indian boarding school movement. And they were little, little, little kids, you know, and I'm telling them about this and how wrong it was. And, and then when they got a little older, and they were about like nine or 10, I said, I want to show you this video. So it was this, it was kind of meant for a high school level, but it was well done. It was about gay marriage, or gay relationships, not marriage, I didn't have marriage back then. And I had two close male friends that were living together and who I love. I just think the world of them. And I said, you know how Ed and Carter are, they love each other, but not in the way of a brother and sister. They love each other like a mom would love a husband. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like they were bored with the whole thing. And finally they said, can we go out and play? And I thought, you know, but at least I've been part of the message. At least they know that the words that are certain words are not tolerated in our household. And that you know, there's, here's two live people that have been over at our dinner table that they can refer to in their mind and know this is an okay thing. The other thing I did is I took them to, when they were like maybe eight, I took them to a women's domestic violence shelter. Before we went, I said, we're going to buy these women Christmas gifts. And they're like, oh, this is going to be fun. So we went to the grocery store and we're buying toilet paper and lotion and toothpaste. And they're like, yeah, what kind of a gift is this? And I said, you watch, you watch you come with me. So I took them into the uh, domestic violence shelter. And I had planned this ahead of time. They knew we were coming. And these women were so excited to get shampoo and lotion and you know all the stuff that they didn't have. And I said, would you explain to my daughters why you're here and why these gifts mean something? And they sat them down and said, you can't ever be tolerant of anybody hurting you you get out of that situation. And these gifts mean a lot to me because I have nothing. I left with the clothes on my back. I have no shampoo. I have no deodorant. I have no nothing. And so these are gifts that mean the world to me. And I mean, they, they were, her eyes were like the size of saucers when they left, you know. So we got out and I said, you don't let anybody touch you. Do you understand me? Nobody. You tell somebody, you tell a teacher, you tell your friend's mother, you tell me, you tell somebody. And I also said, but on the same hand, if an adult makes you uncomfortable for any reason, you get out of there. And I talked about vans in the parking lot. You don't park next to those. And and they were like, whoa. Like, and I said, I know this is scary stuff, but you know what's even scarier is if it were to happen. 
because I, they were older when I got them, they were like three and five when I met them, I had fewer years with them. And I felt more pressure to get that knowledge into them and to counter what they had been told. I didn't have them from birth, you know. And now I see my daughter doing it with her grandchild. You know, she she sits her down and she talks to her too. And now that they're adults, they're in their 30s, you know, they thank me for that. And they said they've never met anybody stronger than me and completely in their corner. And I wanted them to be safety conscious. I wanted them to be confident. I didn't want them thinking anybody had the right to have them put them on the spot and say, well, how come your mom's white and you're not? I said, if they start that crap with you, you send them to me. You don't have to answer them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, you can't do it in a rude way. You can't spit on them or anything. But you say, well, ask my mom. And that's including a teacher, a principal, anybody. And they were like, really? And I go, really? And they were like, all right, you know. <laughs> and I remember telling them, if anybody grabs you and tries to pull you, you can do anything you want to get away. And they said, you mean like kick? And I go, yes, yeah. you can kick them. <laughs> and can I spit on them? Yes, you can do that. And I just want, because it's very scary when you put them on their bicycle. I'll never forget this. The first time they go around the block and they're out of your view. And you're, I was oh, just man. counting. That makes, that makes my heart hurt already. So my <sighs> oldest is three and a half. And then Andy and I actually, my second born and her only were born five days apart and they're a year and a half. Yeah. And it's hard letting go. First time they get in the car, the first time they go on a date, you know, and you're out of control. You All you can do is hope that your teaching kicks in at that point and their instincts. And I also think there's a great book out there. It's called Saving the Gift. And it's written by Gavin DeBecker, who wrote The Gift of Fear, who I think is amazing. I know Gavin DeBecker. I actually you know him. Yes, I've met him. <gasps> yes. Whoa. He's a really good friend of my ex-boyfriend's dad. And he um, we went and visited him in Fiji, where he resides <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. He's amazing. He is truly amazing. And I think those are the kind of things we, as a resource, we need to be talking about because, you know, that first chapter is pretty scary in that book, but women need to know how, what's going on. And I don't mean from Hollywood. Yeah. He spoke at our orientation about all of that. Wow. Yeah. At the, at Boston University, he was like the, one of the guest speakers and he spoke about his books. It's a landmark book. It's still being sold today, years and years later, but I've never met him. <laughs> I'll see if I have an old email address for him. I can connect you guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm definitely going to pick that one up. So you read that, Andy. I did, yes, a long time ago. You know how my memory is with books. But yeah, no, he, he was, he's like very kind and intimidating at the same time. He's very intense. Yes, yeah. Well, speaking of books, Dr. Candy, let's talk about yours. Guys, I cannot recommend Dr. Candy's book enough. It is vulnerable and fact-based, but also you, for our episode, I also read Masquerade, which I know is a very popular book about your husband's case. And I read that first and then I read your book and I actually ended up using more of your book for the actual episode because you wrote about the crime in a straightforward way, but you had the psychological perspective of understanding the motivations of this powder keg of three people in this relationship that created the situation in which a homicide occurred. Mm -hmm. And you told it so beautifully and unflinchingly 
And that was, I have to give you such high regard for that, the way you opened yourself up and shared your story. And I, I wondered if you realized anything else about yourself or your reflection on that experience as you were writing it and if it changed any of your perspectives. Hmm. I've sort of alluded to this before. I think the one major aha moment for me was the idea that I held for so many years that was wrong, which was, I can't talk about this because I'll be judged or I'll be looked at as damaged or some other negative outcome. In writing it in reception from others, really was gratifying because people didn't do those things. And I hoped it shed some light on it. And, and it made me feel more confident in my ability to speak to the the aftermath of homicide in a way that was authentic as well as informative. I didn't want it to be just, oh, woe is me, and it's so sad, but this is what you public people need to know about what the reality is really like, because you really don't know till you've been through it. And I didn't. Why would I? I wanted to take stuff off the shelf and put it out there in the light and say, this is the reality of what we go through. And understand that so that, for example, you won't say to us, are you over that yet? Because a lot of us get that. Or I know just how you feel because my dog died. A lot of us get that. Oh, God. Yeah. And it's not helpful to say those things. And I wanted to communicate that in a way that was rememberable, if that's such a word, because I think in telling it in a story format, it's putting it in the context of being able to recall it rather than just a list of things that people should and shouldn't do. And, it, you know, it felt good to know I could complete that project. It took a long time. And my husband and children read it. And my, <laughs> my daughter, she said, it helped me understand you better, Mom. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And she said, you just have this, this safety awareness about you constantly. And I'm paranoid. I wouldn't say, because, you know, I've traveled around the world literally by myself, literally, nobody with me. I mean, I'm not so paranoid to stay in my basement, you know. But she said, you know, you, you always have that eye towards a step ahead, looking around the corner and filtering things in a way that I don't think a lot of people do and how important that is. And I said, it's just a way of life after you've been through something like this. And then she went with me to Detroit, my oldest did, because uh, Detective Landeros, who, if you know, if you've read the book, I think the world of her. And I was called on Christmas to, not this Christmas, but the one before by her daughter, Marlana, in Detroit. And she asked, she told me that her mother had died and she asked me to do the eulogy. And of course I said I would. So I flew out there at Christmas and my daughter, and who was living in New York at the time, she said, Mom, you should not have to do that by yourself. I'll meet you in Detroit. And she'd never been. So she was with me in Detroit, and she was a great support. And I felt strongly being there, and I wanted to make the words resonate as to the reality of Detective Landeros' situation, that she was a black female in the 80s as a detective. I mean, you talk about barriers being broken. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that. I thought, I'm not going to shy away from that in the eulogy. There are people in this audience, I am sure, who thought she couldn't do it or shouldn't do it. And I'm going to mention that. I won't point fingers, but she was the bravest person I ever met. Oh, I can't even imagine what she faced. Oh, I read her interrogation of Don Spence and John Fry. And I'm telling you, there's a whole other side of that woman I didn't know. Because when she burrowed in, yeah. she burrowed in, you know. And then I, I met some people at, at the funeral 
and they are know the ins and outs of the city backwards and forwards. And they said, and I told them it was the first time my daughter had been to Detroit. And being black, she was interested in the history of Detroit. And I only know so much. And these people knew way more than me. So they agreed to show us around. They took us on a two-hour drive. And they were showing us where Aretha Franklin Church was and all this stuff that, you know, you, you kind of forget if you haven't lived there. It's kind of cool to see it where Barry Gordy lived and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so my daughter thoroughly loved that. And we were sitting in the hotel room that night and it was kind of sad and kind of sweet. She said, you know, mom, she says, after being here, I'm proud to be black. And I'm like, oh, you should have been proud before, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever, you know, at least you're proud. <laughs> but she said the same thing. She said, I can understand you better seeing you in the city. She said, it's a real challenging place to live. And I was by myself and living on the Cass Corridor as a student. And at the time, I was an undergraduate student before I married Al. I was living in a walk-up, a three-floor studio apartment walk-up. And that year, one of the detectives told me there was the 900 murders, and it was there was 1,300 prostitutes in that three-mile square area around there. It was the center for gun sales of the region. And, and I'm walking back and forth to school. I was so determined. I thought nothing is going to stop me. So one of the things I did is I dressed like a boy. I had a hooded, hooded thing. I gave up my purse. I didn't wear makeup. I wore a hooded even in warm weather. And I just looked ahead, didn't look to the side, and you know, tried to get into my apartment before dark. And I only had a couple close calls, and that was over a two-year period. And so I just thought I can put up with anything because it's temporary, and I want this degree so bad. And my parents were not going to do it. I had to put my mattress on the floor away from the window because of gunfire, and there was rats in the apartment. And it was nasty, but I thought, you know, it's all a part of the experience, and this too shall pass. <laughs> and it did, you know. So the book was probably more revelatory for your loved ones than the experience of writing it was for you. They found out all sorts yes, of things. they found out quite a bit. I, I put details in there that never occurred to me to mention, and they didn't ask, so they just didn't know. Wow. We're not going to spend any time talking about the perpetrators of the homicide, but I do want to ask you about where you've come in your journey with your feelings towards your late husband and everything that occurred, because it was a very complicated grieving process. It was. Because it was such a mess at the end, and and, and I wanted to know where, where you feel today and, and if there is some understanding. I mean, it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around. Right. Well... Understanding, yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to because I didn't know vital pieces of information like his high school years. I mean, he was 18 years older than me, so I wasn't a part of his peer group. And he was of a different generation, and I didn't know a lot of his friends who knew him better than me. And as I gradually pulled all the pieces together, it took me a long time, and talked to them and looked at old photographs of him and pulled it together, I realized, you know, he was almost destined to be in a situation like he was in, given his history, which I had no knowledge of prior to that, given his childhood. I mean, here's just one example. He was the only child. And when he was age five in his first day of kindergarten, his mother dressed him as Buster Brown, complete with the outfit, with the hat and the ribbon and long curly blonde locks because she loved the Buster Brown series. So she sends him off to kindergarten that day in that outfit, which is from the previous century. And of course, all the kids made fun of him. So the first day of school, he's already an outsider. 
And then it went from there. So my point being that he didn't have a typical childhood and therefore would not behave as a typical adult. A line I read in a book that I did put in mind that I thought explained it so well is that to lead a secret life, you must have been forced to live one as a child. And he was. He had been. Because to the outside world, this family was perfect. Inside, not so much so, because there was a lot of expectations and criticism and judgment going on constantly. He walked on eggshells around his father. I don't think he was ever physically abusive, but he was definitely emotionally abusive. I never cared for the guy. He was as cold as ice. So anyway, you know, once I understood that, I understood how he could get pulled into this and how he could not be authentic with me because that's what he needed was to be looked up to, to be authenticated, to have a following, to be big daddy. And once I not only equaled him in his education, but surpassed it by getting a postdoctoral fellowship, which he tried to talk me out of, he didn't need me anymore. He had nothing to offer. That was it. He was two-dimensional. There was nothing in there to give me from his point of view. So he went off and searched it and got it elsewhere. He made sure he got people that needed him, that he could control, that he had a guaranteed audience with because he was given the money hand over fist and sometimes drugs. Where with me, it was like I didn't need him then. I wanted him, but I didn't need him. And I think he didn't know how to handle that. The other question that I think you're getting around to is about forgiveness. And my take on forgiveness is this, especially when it's something this large, not something minor. I believe strongly that forgiveness needs to be earned. It's not done for yourself. It's not done to feel better about yourself. It's done because what you want is that person to recognize the depth of your sadness, the depth of your, of your hurt by what they've done and demonstrate to you that they genuinely feel remorseful through their actions, not just words. Because if they don't, if you are rushing in to say, I forgive you, then you're wiping the slate clean and giving them permission to do it again because they haven't learned nothing except, oh, these are the magic words. This is all I've got to say. I think that survivors are under an enormous amount of pressure to forgive. And if they want to do that, and if it works for them, fine, go do it. It would not have worked for me because it would not have been authentic. I say that because he had 18 months to ask my forgiveness because that's how long that charade went on. He didn't once hint at it, let alone ask for forgiveness. And so I saw no point in forgiving him posthumously because he yeah. wasn't there to ask for it. But I thought, no, he didn't earn it. Mm -mm. And I think the argument typically goes, well, if you don't forgive, then you're bitter. I don't agree with that either. I think that's a possibility, but I also think there's a middle ground where you become neutral. You become indifferent. You say, that was messed up. I ain't going to be a part of it. I'm moving on. It's in my rear view, and it's not a part of my life anymore. You're not bitter by it. You're just wiser for it, and you learn from it, and you go on about your life. But that's one of the things I was trying to tell my girls is that you don't let anybody walk on you. You don't give them a free pass because that's how abuse works, whether it's emotional or physical. It starts out gently and then it gets more and more. And that's how you end up in the morgue. Yeah, I think that just sounds like a healthy boundary yes. for yourself, <laughs> and for your psyche. If you don't exert your own boundaries, who's going to? And the people that will press you the most not to have boundaries are the people that need it the most. And I don't have any problem doing that. I can just, especially when it comes to my daughters, 
we went to Kenya once with my oldest daughter because she was getting in to be a little princess. She only wanted clothes from Abercrombie and Fitch, and she wasn't going to ever shop at Walmart and yada, yada. And I thought, uh-uh, we're not having a princess under this roof. So I said to her, how would you like to go to Africa and look at animals? Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. So I said, okay, let's do that. Let's go Let's go to Africa. So she didn't know the rest of the story. We're on the plane, and I'm saying, oh, by the way, there's no electricity where we're going, and we're going to be working to build a girls' school. and It'll be hot and muggy, but we'll make it. And we were part of this group. And we get there, and she's like, oh, my God. Because she, she, her hair got frizzy. She couldn't do anything with it. She couldn't use her cell phone. And so we were there, and she's a very strikingly beautiful young lady. She really is beautiful and tall. And oh, wish I'm not. And she came up to me. She was 16 at the time, just, just radiating her beautiful self. And she comes up to me and she goes, mom, she goes, I'm scared. And I said, why? And she said, these boys keep following me. They keep wanting me to go into the brush. And I go, well, do you want to handle this or I will handle this? If I handle this, it's going to be right now. And what do you want to do? I can help you or you can have me. I want you to do. I'm scared. And I said, okay. So I went to the chief and I said to him, look, your guys are bothering my daughter and we're guests in this country. And he tried to whitewash. Oh, it doesn't mean nothing, you know. And I said, it doesn't matter. She's scared. And I said, either you put a stop to it or I will put a stop to it. And if I put a stop to it, I'm going over your head as a woman, because it's a very patriarchal society. I'm going over your head as the chief and doing your job and you will be shamed for it. So I'd suggest you do it right now. He looked at me like, who the hell are you to talk to me like that? <laughs> you are a woman, for God's sakes, you know? And I said, that don't play with me. Mm-mm, not when it comes to my babies. No. And I said, I don't mean tomorrow. I mean now. <sighs> he stomps off. I don't know what he said. He spoke in Swahili. And next thing I know, my daughter said to me, Mom, nobody will talk to me. And I go, so, oh, well. oh, well. And we went back another time, and I bought her a fake wedding ring before we left. And everybody left her alone at work. Oh, so smart. <laughs> wow. That is insane. You know, going back to your, um, you're talking about Al and how when you surpassed him, he needed something new. I thought that part of your book was so incredible. The way you wrote about it, I even quoted it in our episode. You said his unspoken need to be in control had been nullified. I wanted reciprocity. Al wanted dependency. I wanted autonomy. Al wanted subjugation. The moorings of our marriage had loosened. And I found that very compelling because, you know, you you seemed concerned, like you didn't want to appear weak. And you appear so strong throughout the entire narrative. And I remember telling Andy that part. And Andy, do you remember your response? Yeah, it was about... His weakness. Yeah, about how overall he's just, it's ultimately his problem that he right. wanted that. Right. He it's was. not, it doesn't have anything to do with you. But I think as a culture, I think women are often blamed for the men being insecure or weak or not emotionally advanced to the level that not only women are, but just like a society in general. And so I think it's just, it's horrible for anyone to go through. But I think the most important thing is teaching the next generation, which you've done a phenomenal job, not only with your children, but your book. Thank you. I I also think that women too often rate their own self-esteem on the men's opinion of them. That's why it it concerns me because I'm on TikTok now at the suggestion of my daughter. And when I'm on there, I see all these videos about how to attract guys and how to hold guys and how to make them 
want for you. And I'm like, well, why would you want to do a gamey thing like that? If they don't love you for who you are, if they don't see your, your innate value, the hell with them. Absolutely. I mean, that was my whole thing. My, my husband and I got married five months after meeting and I told him on our first date, I said, look, I want to get married. I'd like to do it probably in the next couple of years. I'd like to have kids. And this is our first date. And this is too intense for a first date. I, I know. But if you're not into it, I want to know right now. <laughs> and I'm not right now. <laughs> yeah, let's like, if this is too much for you, guess what? It doesn't get any less intense. <laughs> <laughs> and with my husband, it was kind of the opposite because he had to pull everything out of me. But I did not tell him I had daughters until we had dated several dates. Because I thought, I don't want any man dating me to get access to my daughters. Smart. Very smart. Jesse, I think we have something else to learn from from Dr. Jan. I think we do. We have a lot. I think you should do a parenting podcast too. Do you know what else what I'm referring to though? What we have to learn from her? TikTok. Oh, TikTok. Oh. Yeah, we don't know anything about TikTok. <laughs> yeah, my daughter thought it would bring in a, a younger generation to my podcast and it has. And I've met some phenomenal people on there. I mean, there's some real weirdos out there, but there's some really cool people on there. There are, there are. We're, we're trying, we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we need TikTok and parenting advice. We're yes. going to be hitting you up for those things. <laughs> on the regular. <laughs> uh, well, this was so wonderful. I hope we have this an opportunity to do this again because you are an inspiration Guys, I can't tell you enough. Get the book, Life Divided. Buy it. It's amazing. We are going to make sure that we put it all over our socials. I'm very much looking forward to your next release. When can we look forward to that? Well, I'm hoping it'll be out by November. I'm going to be posting things on my webpage as I know more details. My focus this week is when I got the copy work back from the editor, but I, I'm gearing up for this major conference on Tuesday. I leave for Omaha. So I'm, I'm going to look at it on the plane. And I don't think she has a lot of, re, a lot of revisions, but hopefully she doesn't. And then um, it's just a matter of, of doing the copyright stuff, the artistic stuff. And then Amazon has their own editing tools that they want you to do. So I'm just trying to be generous with the guidelines. So I'm not nuts and say probably November because I have combed through that so many times. I feel like I've memorized it and I'm happy with it. It took me two years to write it. I've had 17 contributors to the book. I was astounded by the generosity of so many people in writing it. I would call them up. I would say, this is my book. This is why I'm doing it. And I'm not an expert in fill in the blank, but you are. Could I ask you a few questions? And they're saying, sure. And I'd ask them and I'd say, can I quote you on that? Sure. Can I put you in my contribution list? Of course. And not one person said no to me. And so I have people from undertakers to attorneys to uh, construction people because of the chapter on, on uh, probate and selling your house and getting it ready for sale. And so it was a real community effort in some respects. And I'm really happy with it. And I hope it's well received and useful to people. Everyone agreeing to do it is just a testament of how incredible you are. Oh, thank you. Well, there's good in the world. There's generosity out there. We don't hear enough about it, but there is. Well, thank you so much. You finished your book. I think it was a, a quote of a friend or something. I'm not sure who the person was by saying that life was an adventure. And yes. yeah, it was a friend of mine said that. Yes. And you said, I hope yours is an astonishing one. And I thought that was just a beautiful way to finish 
a really revelatory memoir. So thank you very much for that. And for shining some some light on all of these topics for so many people, I'm sure our listeners will love it. So thank, thank you. I hope so too. Thank you all so right. much, Jan. Okay. 